This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. So I have a really unusual and fascinating guest this week, and I know I say this every single week, but my guest this week was Harry Shearer. Uh, you know him from SNL, The Simpsons, This Is Spinal Tap. He's produced documentaries. He has a 32-year-old radio show. It's been running 32 years, called Le Show. Obviously, everybody knows The Simpsons. He's half of the voices on The Simpsons. I don't know if they could do the show without him. And and he's just really a thoughtful, intelligent, interesting guy that has some real insights into the entertainment and television uh, business. Unfortunately, we only had him for about 45 minutes. He had a run uh, to catch a plane, so we were a little tight for time. But... um. It's really an interesting and entertaining conversation, and the next time he's in New York, he lives in New Orleans, the next time he's here, we'll get him back to talk about uh, an update to the documentary he did 10 years ago about New Orleans. It, it seems really, really fascinating. Post-Katrina, what happened, why it happened, what failed. I'll let him tell you the story. It's, it's, it's intriguing. And just generally talking to somebody with the breadth of experience that he has in film, theater, music, um, television, radio, he, he's really just a general entertainer. And, and, and I found our conversation delightful. I hope you do as well. Without any further ado, my chat with Harry Shearer. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, we have a very special guest. And I know I say that every week, but <laughs> it happens to be true. We have... An actor, comedian, writer, voice actor, musician, author, radio host, director, and producer, the one, the only, Harry Shearer. Harry, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much. So for those of you who may not know who um, Harry is- um, Which includes me. I don't know who I am. Uh, you know, I have a question about that yeah. coming up. We'll, we'll get to that. I, I first noticed him, not for his synchronized swimming on Saturday Night Live, <laughs> but as- the bass player uh, of a band whose drummers kept on spontaneously combusting called Spinal Tap. Do you hate the word mockumentary or rockumentary? No, no, no. It, it seems like that's been beaten to death. That was the first mockumentary, or at least it feels like that. Yeah, I, I co-wrote with Albert Brooks uh, a sort of precursor right. for that called Real Life, but it wasn't shot in exactly the same way, so it didn't quite qualify as a, as a mockumentary. But yeah, I mean, I don't get as sick of that as I get of television shows sort of taking the the uh, visual style of the movie without mm -hmm. any purpose at all. You just, know, just to make it look a little different. Just to make it look edgy. a little edgy, right? Uh, you and know, speaking of television, you've dabbled in. TV. I've dabbled. I've dabbled in a cartoon show for right. about twenty-seven years. He is for, uh, again for those of you who may not be familiar Late with a show Rinders. called uh, <laughs> The Simpsons. He's essentially, Harry is essentially half of the characters. Here's the quote. He's half of the regular characters and, quote, he pads his resume with God, the devil, and Hitler. Yes, sir. On The Simpsons. Yeah. Um, and you're some of the really big characters. So, Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns, Smithers, Ned Flanders, Reverend Lovejoy, Kent Brockman, uh, Scratchy Otto, Principal Skinner. Kent Brockman really sounds the closest to your You voice. think so, do you, Barry? I, I do. We'll, Interesting. We'll, we'll talk. <laughs> We'll talk a little more about The Simpsons in a little bit. Um, I'm not done with your your curriculum vitae. 
He's the director and producer of the documentary The Big Uneasy about the destruction of New Orleans. And then there's a 10-year version of that, an anniversary of that coming out. A radio documentary for the BBC called The Crescent in the Shadow, which uh, runs on, on BBC's national uh, service in Britain and also on the BBC World Service Worldwide. Are we um, going to see it here, BBC America or anything like that? It's not. A, it's not. It's radio. Right. I, I mean, it. It uh, some hear it. Are we can hear some it public radio stations carry World Service, so it may be. Uh, heard I listen to BBC Two on streaming over the internet. Radio so, Two. Yeah. So yeah. so I, I should. You like that able... middle of the road music, do you? Um, I like what's his name. Um, Bob Harris. Yeah. Was, oh, I just voice. had He's I just so had dinner with Bob good. Harris the other night. I mean, you know, it's funny because I, I every now and then on the blog on on the big picture I'll throw up a music post or something. And people have said to me, you found Amy Winehouse before anybody ever thanks, heard of her here. I go, Bob. oh, Bob Harris. Bob yeah. Harris, he's and, great. And there's a half a dozen other people oh, yeah. along those lines that I used to, on the in the winters, when I'm working indoors on the weekend. Now, you're from California, so you're spoiled. Yes, sir. But here, when the weather's nice and you have work to do, it, you go out. It doesn't matter. And there, I'm told... The weather's always nice. In California. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Mainly I live in New Orleans now, and the weather is right. nice except during the summer. Oh, you, you're a California kid, though. Didn't you yeah. grow up out there? Yeah. When when did you make the move to New Orleans? Well, started. I first went to New Orleans in 88, and then just kept going more and more often. And finally, my wife and I decided not to subsidize the hotel business there anymore, and we bought a place in the mid-90s, and then we bought our present uh Huge spread in, uh, mm-hmm. it's not a spread, it's a pile, in uh, <laughs> 2006. Uh, post. Post. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. All right, so so let's get into a little detail about your background, because I find you to be um, fascinating f- for many reasons beyond The Simpsons. Uh, so let me ask you this question. Uh, you meet somebody, they don't know your work, and they ask you, so what do you do? How does someone like you answer that question? Well, you know, I have the occasion to to answer that very question quite often because I go to London, and they don't know who you are there. No, they know who I am. But I mean, you know, on the on the landing form, you have to say your occupation, and mm-hmm. I just put entertainer, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, everything I do, you know, even when I was making that very serious no jokes uh, documentary about why New Orleans flooded, I had an entertainer's clock working in my head. It's a narrative. You want to tell a story, but if the people are, if the viewers aren't interested, the point never gets. Across. I got ninety minutes max. Right. If I, I haven't got the story told by that time, I've lost them. I should learn that here because I go two hours sometimes with some. You people need and, you need my my clock inside your head. All right, uh, you know P, uh, we tell people if it's too long, listen to it in two segments. Um, <laughs> so it, let listen to it faster. That's <laughs> you can do that with a lot of the the playback stuff. So. The story that you've you've discussed about how you got into the business sounds like an urban legend. You have a piano teacher mm-hmm. who decides I'm going to become an agent, yes, and goes to your parents and says, "Hey, your your boy would make for a good child actor." She was uh, the mother of a of a child actress, so she already knew people in the business, so she mm-hmm. had contacts. Um, I don't know if she went to the parents of all the kids that she taught or just to mine. Uh, that. That's lost in the mists of history mm-hmm. or, or lack of history. But she did come to my parents and say, do you mind if I try to get Harry work? They were both immigrants from Eastern Europe. Uh, they thought this was phantasmagorical. Right. And they'd never hear from her again. And then seven months go by, and finally she calls with an audition for the Jack Benny program. And I was a very good reader. And so I went in and just aced the first reading and uh, got the job and worked for Jack Benny for eight years. 
You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Harry Shearer, best known for The Simpsons, Spinal Tap, The Show. You've put out a number of musical CDs, mm-hmm. including Greed and Fear, which we'll get back to okay. later, has a little bit to do with the financial crisis yeah. and, and other things. Uh, but I'm intrigued by your early work with, you were eight years old, seven years old? Seven years old. Abbott and Costello. What yeah. was that like? Well, uh, Abbott wasn't there that day. I worked one day, and Abbott and Costello go to Mars. Uh, Costello was was nice, you know. I, I basically it was a binary world that a child actor exists in. Either they're nice or they're not nice. Okay, that's that's, that's it. Yeah, and Jack Benny nice. was uh, Jack Benny was extraordinarily nice, and I knew him for eight years. So I mean, I have a, a I had a fairly special relationship with him. I thought. When you were working at that time in, in Hollywood, were you aware of the fact that, hey, this is the end, really, of an era, that the Hollywood machinery was starting to really change into something else? And I was more aware of the fact that it was the end of, of a very specific era, the era of big-time network radio, because I mm-hmm. started in on Jack Benny's radio program, and people were doing comedy programs and dramatic programs on the radio, like they still do in England, right. interestingly enough. Uh, but all that was dying as I was entering it. So uh, within a few years, Benny had had added a television show, and I worked m- migrated to that. And I saw all these radio shows just sort of falling in the dust, and the radio networks following. And yet, you've stayed with radio your whole career. I love radio. Um, uh, it, it changed, and I was really uh, f- profoundly influenced by uh, a comedy team and a newscaster. The comedy team was Bob and Ray, who oh, sure. worked in New York for 40 years together, and really invented the, the the modern way of doing radio, not on a big stage in front of an audience with an orchestra, but by themselves in a little studio. There was a third guy, too, Gene Shepard, mm-hmm. who was a storyteller on the radio, again, just by himself in a studio, and then Paul Harvey, the legendary news broadcaster, yep. who, again, sat in a studio uh, talking to the audience personally. It wasn't a big show anymore, but it was this incredibly powerful 15 minutes of radio, and I be- I became aware of how easy it is to paint pictures with radio. I do satirical sketches on my radio show, and the work that I do to f- create a picture of Hillary and Bill talking or Obama- Richard home, Nixon, perhaps? Richard Nixon, uh, or Trump looking with his advisors, would co- take a, hund- a-, a crew of 100 people on television. For me, on radio, it takes me. And you have an, a, a gift for voices, so that allows you to do things that perhaps one person working by themselves normally might not be able to get That's away correct. with. That's correct. But even even with that alleged talent, uh, to do it in television would take a lot more people and a lot more money and a lot more time. So radio is something I can do while I'm doing the rest of my life. So let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Spinal Tap. I... I, I th- just fell in love with the movie in college, so that that tells you how how old I was. It tells me you went to college. Um, uh, they you know they let you in. Uh, I I actually went all the way. I, wow. I kept going until they said that's it, you're done. Oh, you mean with your studies? With my studies. Oh, that's I exactly I right. That's exactly correct. Um, I thought you were bragging. Yes. Well, um, hence. You can see I'm on radio, so that the sort of braggadocio <laughs> does not uh, really take place. So the film. Yeah. Was made in twenty five days, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, what was that set like? You have you, Christopher Getz, Michael McKean, and Rob Reiner directing this. That had to be a hilarious group of people. It was, uh, and then we had all these really funny people coming in to do other parts. Billy Crystal, 
uh, Fran Drescher, Fred Willard. Fred Willard's the one who who challenged us uh, to not laugh. I mean, it was almost impossible when Fred Willard came in. He is he is from another galaxy. Uh, <laughs> you just can't fathom where this stuff comes from, and he's relentless, and his energy is just overpowering and he, he so that was really the challenge was not to laugh during Fred's scenes but yeah it was it was great fun uh we'd have about three or four takes maximum and then it's rolling on you know? mostly improv all uh, improv uh, uh, two my, two lines were written in the entire movie that's the entire thing yeah it was Fam- all improv. famously improv how much good stuff didn't make it into the final hours uh, hours of stuff hours yeah. so there 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 was never really a spinal tap uh director's cut dvd there was a dvd with some some extra scenes but there's a few minutes i i mean like if there's hours worth of stuff i gotta think especially given how the audience for this developed it came out a lot of people didn't necessarily get it yeah some reviews were really laudatory some not so much and then it slowly developed its own following and now i think it's on 29 of the 100 Number twenty nine on the one hundred best comedies. Well, the first twenty eight. The first twenty eight suck. They're just, they're uh, just filler. I can tell you one thing about Spinal Tap. It is probably in the annals of relatively successful movies the only self marketed one. It, really, it, nobody ever spent a dime on marketing. You never saw a billboard for that movie. You never saw. A I television. saw a poster somewhere. We had it. In, I worked in the campus films with yeah. with a friend, and for there the, was for a the DVD, spinal for tap. the for the for the oh, you home might be video right. yeah. for the for the theatrical film, and uh, you know there was. I think there was one newspaper ad when the day it opened. It was it was all of the success has been self marketed basically by fans telling each other word of mouth. It's a classic word of mouth story. The, yeah, this is pre-internet too, so nobody was tweeting about no, this back, no, 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 no. Uh, back then. So this is a horribly cliched question, but I have to ask it. So you make this movie that turns out to be this incredible cult longevity film. When you're doing it, do you have any idea that you guys got a little bit of a lightning in a bottle? Well, or? we had to we had to pitch it to Hollywood studios, all of whom turned it down, and. What I would say to them is, look, everybody in the world in this in this day and age, in that day and age particularly, uh, knows all about rock and roll. Rolling Stone has shoved every detail sure. of rock and roll down their throats. This is not an unfamiliar story. Uh, this is a familiar story. Forty million people have taken guitar lessons. This will strike, so to speak. No a pun chord, intended. A right. chord. Sure. Uh, they all turned it down. Fortunately, Norman Lear was running Embassy Pictures for a few moments and, and picked it up. But by the way, since this is a financial show, I think it's important to say that despite all the success it's enjoyed, according to what we're being told uh, officially, the film has not yet gone into profit. <laughs> according to Hollywood accounting. Yes. Although that has changed with the, the, the whatchamacallit, the coming to America litigation. No, that just put it to, that, that just, uh, all that did was, Pay a few people to go away so that the studios didn't have to open their books. That was it. So Spinal it. Tap still in the red. Uh-huh. It cost seventeen dollars and forty three cents to make. Yeah, it's grossed billions of dollars, but you know there's a lot of other costs involved that don't show up on. That's on- correct. They're they're just they're they're palazzos in Italy we don't even know about. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today, Harry Shearer. You know him from The Simpsons. 
Uh, Spinal Tap, Le Show. Uh, we could keep going down the whole list of things. Maybe Jack Manny and, and Abin Costello for some of our older audience. The Mi- a Mighty Wind, the Christopher Guest movie. That's right. Yeah. And you've what else have you done with Christopher Guest? I did that, and for your consideration, the last Christopher Guest movie. The the um the Oscar yeah. uh, mockumentary, yeah. Yeah. so to speak. I recall that. The actors um, living in the And you were not of. you were not in Best in Show. I was not. I was making my own movie at that time, which was mm-hmm. a. a a comedy about uh, a lightly fictionalized comedy about the uh, secret, supposedly secret retreat of the richest, most powerful white men in America. The real one is called Bohemian Grove. The, uh-huh, the sure. Movie, the movie was called uh, Teddy Bear's Picnic because if you go out in the woods today, you're in for a big surprise. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, let's talk a little more about Spinal Tap before we get into um, the big uneasy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still record occasionally as Derek Smalls. How how often is is that going on? Or write songs I'm, in his voice? I'm in the middle of a of a Derek Smalls solo album project as we speak. I've been writing the songs and uh, doing demo versions of them. And uh, my producer and I are working on on you know getting together and getting an all star band together to play them. And uh, is anyone willing to be the drummer for Derek Smalls, or does that come with its own liability? I think issues? we'll just get a machine. Oh, we, tr- we bought a drum machine, but it exploded. So <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. There but yeah, go. I think we'll get some drummers. Uh, we once had drummer auditions for Spinal Tap, uh, and uh, we had it at the L.A. Coliseum just to, because its capacity was 93,300 people showed up. And uh, uh, the drummer for uh, Fleetwood Mac came in an asbestos uh as a suit. Joke. Oh, that's yeah. Hilarious. You know, just to make sure he didn't. Uh, when when was this done? This was in the ninety uh, two when when our uh, second record came out, uh, "Break Like the Wind." And I, I just like saying "Break Like the Wind." Of course, yeah. that's the only the only other way to break. So so let's get serious a minute yep. and talk a little bit about the big uneasy. So you've been a, a New Orleans resident for quite a while, mm-hmm. and in in the documentary, you basically say this. This wasn't an act of God. This was a man-made disaster. I don't say it. I bring you the people from two universities, UC Berkeley and Louisiana State, who organized independent investigations, uh, much of it pro bono work, uh, lasting months and months. Uh, they did all the the forensics. They did all the literally deep digging, and they came up with remarkably uh, in identical conclusions that uh, in the words of the co-author of the Berkeley Report, this was the greatest man-made uh, engineering catastrophe since Chernobyl, that had the so-called protective system worked as advertised, a system that the federal government built for New Orleans via the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers after the 1965 hurricane. Uh, the worst Katrina would have inflicted on New Orleans would have been, quote, wet ankles, unquote. That's pretty much it. And, yeah. and you know, there were, I recall, post-Katrina, Everybody starts finding and and re, rediscussing and retweeting. I don't remember if it was Twitter or some other media at the time it was probably pre-Twitter uh, articles that had predated Katrina, warning, "Hey, you know this levee system ain't a whole lot of." No, they were anything. warning about what would happen in New Orleans if a Category Five hurricane hit the city. Mm-hmm. Those were all the predictions: was the city is in big trouble if a Category Five hurricane hit the city. Two things, Katrina 
wasn't a Category 5 hurricane. By the time it went in the vicinity of New Orleans, it was a, a strong one or a weak Category 2. That's according to the National Hurricane mm-hmm. Center's final report. And two, it didn't hit the city. It went 35 miles to the northeast. So this was not the widely foreseen disaster that people had foretold. This was just an engineering failure. This was a widespread, the, the system so-called, the, the Corps of Engineers itself, admitted, or the head of it admitted at one point, this was a system in name only. It had been built over 40 years. It had never been completed. Piecemeal. Piecemeal. Uh, it it broke in over 50 locations. So here we are, a decade past. You live in New Orleans. Yes, sir. Do you feel safer now? Uh, I feel fine because I live in this part of the city that did not flood. In, in 2005. It's called the Sliver by the River. It's by the Mississippi. It's the highest ground in New Orleans. Uh, if I look at the system that at a taxpayer cost of $14 billion has wow. been built by the same people who built the last one, and I read what the the educated people, knowledgeable people say about it, which is it was built to a lower standard than the one that failed. Uh, I so have, you got nothing to worry about. I got, I'm cool. <laughs> so in the last minute we have... New Orleans still susceptible to a Cat 5 hurricane and still susceptible to a near miss with high floodwaters. Well, Cat 5 is not, yeah, I mean, Cat, you know, Miami, every every city on the Atlantic and Gulf Coast is susceptible to a Category 5 hurricane. That's not the issue. But New Orleans, if a lesser hurricane comes by with very heavy rainfall in the next two or three years, there might be a problem. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, and my guest this week is voice actor, best known for The Simpsons, Harry Shearer. So so let's go through the list of all your voices, all your characters on The Simpsons. Mr. Burns, who you've described as the most difficult character you currently do. No, I have not. No. You have not? No, I, he's fine. Uh, Dr. Marvin Monroe. Was well, the, you you don't do him anymore. No, although they brought him back last season. Uh, ah. They brought him back from the dead. No, Burns is fine. The only time I had problems with doing him was when we were doing uh, video games, and I'd be doing Mr. Burns for four consecutive hours, and oh, the only direction killer. the only direction I'd get was louder. <laughs> you know, then, what, that, then it gets a little uh, strange, stressful. You know, and then and then Mr. Burns' assistant uh, Smithers, Smithers, yes, who's a who's a wonderful character, one of my favorite voices. I that be, you do. I, thank you. I believe the correct description of him is is amanuensis. Okay, <laughs> and um, we've we've talked Ned Flanders. Yeah. Now Ned Flanders really developed into a whole different character than originally planned, or so I've read. Yeah, you know I've read that, and I I have no memory of that. Uh, that if if that ain't an urban legend, I ain't living really? in the big city. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it it may have happened. I I couldn't swear either way, but it's it's out of my can. Uh, I just remember, you know, being handed a script and saying, you're this guy. So so was the Hey Diddly Doodle stuff written, or did you kind of create that? I couldn't even answer that question. No honestly. kidding. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's in, in, the, in, the, in the beginnings of stuff, you don't really keep, I don't, I don't keep a diary. I, I wasn't, you know, taking notes. I wasn't keeping score. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, oh, this is mine. I'm owning this. Right. I should have. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so I... I I, I, I couldn't say with any degree of certainty. It may have been written. It may have been an ad lib. It may have been an ad lib that then the writers expanded upon. It may have been uh, something written that I expanded upon. So, so given that, let, let's digress a little bit. So what sort of planning or thinking or, or inspiration goes into 
each of these characters? I would say basically uh, almost none. Okay. Uh, I would You're shattering my, my, <laughs> I'm, I'm tr- my I'm trying, childhood. Uh... I'm trying to. I would see these scripts. We would never see the, in the early days, never see the drawings of the characters. So we had no idea ah. what they looked like in the uh, aborning stages. When you say early days, you mean like the Tracy Ullman show no. or the first couple of Simpsons? No, I wasn't on the, the Tracy Ullman show. Uh, but when I came to the Simpsons and we would start, you know, I would start doing characters. They'd start mm-hmm. sending me scripts. You're this oh, guy. You're right. this there guy. There were no other character. It was no, just the immediate just family. family. Right. So the, there's this guy, there's this guy, there's this guy, there's this guy. I wouldn't see a drawing. I just have a one line description. You know, he, old miser runs the nuclear power plant in the case of Mr. Burns. And I would make uh, an intuitive leap as to how the person sounded. Mm-hmm. And I figured if they don't like the intuitive leap, they'll tell me to stop. And if they don't tell me to stop, I'll keep doing it. I didn't think I'd keep doing it for 27 years. But is it that long? Is yeah, it 27 yeah. years? But so there was not, it was not an analytical process. That's what I try to uh, impart is that uh, it's, it's, it's intuitive. Uh, there are only two people, only two characters that I do that had any resonance with people I'd already done before or people in the real world. Uh, one was uh, when they had me doing Reverend, Reverend Love, Lovejoy. Reverend Lovejoy. Sure. And uh, who's, I, who's actually a, a sort of charming, albeit wacky naive, naivete. He's one. Of, I do two characters on the show that uh, uh, years after they were, the Christians were denouncing the show for <laughs> Bart being a bad role model, they discovered that my two, two of my characters were the only two professed Christians on uh, American television primetime. Lovejoy and, and Ed Flanders. Flanders. Yeah. So uh, I had done- uh, That's hilarious. I had done sat- uh, satirical takeoffs on this uh, evangelist uh, named Ernest Angley, mm-hmm. who was a healer. And uh, so I took his voice and just changed it a little bit for uh, Reverend Lovejoy. And then Principal Skinner, I was really running out of uh, intuitive leaps. And uh, you may remember a guy who used to be on CBS uh, named Charles Kiralt. Oh, of course. He was on the road. On the road, sure. And he was on the road because he had a squeeze in Montana in a cabin hidden from his wife. You know that story, right? No, I don't. We'll talk about it. Anyway, uh, so I just took that particular kind of nasality and sped him up and, and made him less avuncular and more sinister and turned him into Principal Skinner. Oh, that's unbelievable. So, um... Uh, what about bus driver Otto? Where, do, where does that come from? It comes from the part of the voice that I hate doing. That's that's the pain painful part. That's so. The pa- well, Doctor Marvin Monroe is more painful than that. Otto is kind of a trick, but Marvin Monroe was he was written as a character. He was a family therapist, and the whole joke of his character was he was a guy who, far from being you know somebody a healer just made you stressed out from listening to him talk because he had such an irritating way of speaking. So that was the, the whole idea. So let's talk a little bit about Skinner. I, I, I didn't even mention your work on SNL. We haven't even gotten to yeah. that. Male synchronized swimming you mentioned. Uh, we, were so, we were so ahead of our time. There is now a male synchronized swimmer. And so so you guys actually yeah. pre-pressingly- Preciously did, did uh, anticipate it. So, yeah. so let's go back to Principal Skinner. Yeah. So not a couple of years ago- the writers decided to basically take however many years that Skinner had wormed his way into everybody's heart mm-hmm. and turn around and basically say- He's Armin Tamsarian. Right. Let, let, let's just make him a fraudster. Yeah. Uh, and you really push back on this. Yeah. You know, the one thing that we in the cast, uh, everybody in the cast tries to do is is uh, keep faith with the audience uh, who's kept faith with us. Uh they know these characters. We're kind of the institutional memory of the show, 
and uh, it's you're a, protective. Of it's the a character. it's a writer's show, as most television is. But we're protective of the characters. And I said, boy, this is you're not you're not making you're not rewarding the audience for their years of attention. And of course, that's that's now an episode that's never spoken of. <laughs> so they did it, yeah. and then kind of forgot about it. And Skinner, what happens with him afterwards? Now he's back to Seymour Skinner. Like nobody ever. It was a dream. <laughs> That's the t- that's four words of you. You always need to know about television. It was a dream. Well, that seems to be the classic uh, ending. If you can't come up that's with it. any any other ending, so yeah. I have a quote of yours. I have to throw out because I love this. And again, we're a financial show, and this talks on the finance. But quote says Harry Shearer, as an actor on an insanely successful TV <laughs> series, I am by any standard of the human species obscenely overpaid. It is also true that as an actor on one of the most insanely successful television series of all times, I am getting royally screwed. <laughs> Both things are true. Discuss. Um, you know, I've just been through a very uh, somewhat publicized... Uh, By somewhat publicized, you mean entire internet, worldwide, yeah, Twitter, yeah, Facebook, yeah. LinkedIn, uh, everywhere else. Uh, discussion and a series of discussions with uh, the show which resulted satisfactorily in my return to the show. Both of us, I think, are satisfied with the result. Um, That was not about money. Uh, It is apparent that uh, the guys who got in early uh, got the lion's share of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean the cast members. Um, And um, there may not be anything more there at this point. Right. Uh, So I'm... I have to be happy with what we got, you know. Uh, it's, uh, you know understood. Uh, the, the, I'll, I'll, it's not chicken feed. I know we. I'm we, concentrating on the first part of that sentence. The um, uh, Wikipedia actually lists what your your per episode um, uh, payroll is, and it looks like a lot of money. I have to work. You know, if you're in finance, you have to work like two weeks to get that sort of money. <laughs> this is, you know, what you do in an hour. So yeah. you're you're really you're really well paid. But that's but said, we, we don't get paid by the amount of time we work. Uh, we get paid by it, one in show business gets paid by the amount of value we create. Don't we all wish yeah. we can say that? Well, that sort of thing. But I mean, it's true. It's true of sports figures and for it's true sure of celebrities. Sports figures. How many people? In the worlds are Michael Jordan or right. LeBron James or whoever. You know, I always have this debate with people. Uh, y- when you could do something fairly unique and there's a demand for that service, you could charge and, what the market and, bears. And, and my feeling about when, when in the old days Fox used to say however, how much or how quick we, we would – how, how much time or how quickly we could do these shows, I would always say, yeah, if you've got the – 20, 25, 30 years of experience that allows you to do it that quickly. Right. If you want to hire a guy off the street, he'll take you two weeks to do it. Right. You it, can have that. <laughs> the, it, writers are fond of saying, I apologize for the length of the letter. I didn't have time, time to, to make it shorter. It, it's the exact same exact same uh, uh, thing. So, so let's go through the development of a, a typical episode of The Simpsons. How involved are you, given your background in ad lib in comedy in snl in in all these things do you just come in and voice the characters or is there a little back and forth um the back and forth is basically what we were talking about earlier about defending the characters uh uh or or yeah uh what about in the service of the funny how how does that work they're they're in charge of that Mm -hmm. um now this year i i may be writing a script or two so i may get more deeply involved in that process have you done that previously no 
Yeah. Is that something that that's been? You would think that that's a natural fit. You you have a long career as a writer, yeah. and a comedy writer. Yeah. How is it that you've worked for them for twenty seven years and no one said, "Hey, this guy Harry Shearer, he he's funny. You Maybe ask, we should get him to." You got to ask one of them. Uh, really, but, but it, it just never came up. Never came up. Well, I suggested it at one point, and they said, "No, we're fine." And so I dropped. We're it. good. We there's we're plenty good. of people coming out of Harvard. Yeah, we're Lampoon. Good. We could do but this forever. This, this was this was not my suggestion this time around. It was proposed to me, and I thought, okay, so that's a very we'll nice gesture. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, I have a I have an, a couple ideas. So oh, that's exciting. Yeah. And let's keep. Um, you know, we're talking a little bit about. We talked earlier about radio before mm-hmm. we started, but. Talking about your career, you've done TV, you've done film, you've done radio, mm-hmm. you've written books, you've uh-huh. recorded CDs. I've acted in plays. Uh, so what turns out to be your your favorite form of media? Uh, you know, I used to say, uh, w- much like my friends Christopher Guest and Michael McKean, I, I like doing it all, that's why I do it all. But there was one year, about five or six years ago, when it was about this time of year, and I realized... Well, we did a Spinal Tap record. Then I did uh, some live gigs off of um, not the Greed and Fear record, but the one before that Mm -hmm. with great musicians. Then we did, uh, Michael and Chris and I did a tour where we were going out touring as ourselves, but playing Spinal Tap music and Folksman music. I thought, God, it's been eight months of doing nothing but music. I've never been happier. Really? Yeah. That's fantastic. So is there more music... uh well, coming I mean, up in your future? Yeah, I mean, this Derek Smalls solo album. Uh, so is, when is that coming out? Don't know yet, but I've... I'm, it's all bass. No, no, it's not. <laughs> but it's. I think we're going to call it So Low. Okay, as a that solo, works. As a solo record. And there's a reference to the bass. Yes, uh, and now, okay. but now, right now I'm working on a, a Christmas single, a charity Christmas single, so I'm getting a bunch of singers involved, and it's sort of a... Uh, it'll, it'll maybe out this Christmas, hopefully. So I'm always working, and I write songs every once in a while for the radio show. So the show, yeah, which you've been doing for how many thirty two decades, <laughs> thirty seven thousand years, yeah. right? So so you've been doing this for as lo- longer than you've been doing the Simpsons. Oh yeah. So radio, really, you you talked about the various shows and the various people who are influences. I know I only have you for a few more minutes, so yeah. let me let me turn to some of my. Favorite questions that that I ask everybody, um, and one or two that I just ask. I, I got to talk politics a little bit. Okay. So you come of age in the '60s. Mm-hmm. Clearly, some political bend. Mm-hmm. What 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 was the motivation for that? What other than avoiding going to Vietnam? That was a big one. That that, that works. <laughs> that so, was the biggest. Uh, is that the thing that really colors your perspective more than anything? It colored my perspective on a couple of presidents who wanted my ass. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but no, I grew up in a political in a family that was my my parents, as I mentioned, were uh, European immigrants, so they they had they had serious reasons to pay attention to politics. I mean, the most life and death reasons imaginable. Sure. They they leave uh, Europe during uh, right just, before just the Holocaust. Before, just right? before, and they, were they the got only, out in time. They were the only ones. So out of their family, yeah, no, nobody else yeah. had made it. So I was, you know, raised by people who re- read the paper, talked about it all the time at dinner time. It, we we paid a lot of attention to it. So and yet you still voice Hitler for the Simpsons. Is there any irony in that? Or uh, Mel Brooks did a whole movie about Hitler. You know, I mean. You, uh, one, and a play, yeah. <laughs> one one uh, Freud said, "You make fun of the things you fear." Makes sense, yeah. Right? He, uh, he got that one right. Yes, he did. So I've, you know, the only thing that's really changed for me is is uh, I've got a lot less 
fascination with the day-to-day machinations of current American politics because so much of it seems to be a shadow play these days. I mean, it's always it's there's always that some aspect of that, but as the uh, as the Democratic Party uh, found that its source major source of funding was being dried up as the union movement shrank. Right. It was t- forced to turn to many of the same sources for money as the Republican Party. Uh, exhibit A, uh, Barack Obama's uh, uh, largest contributor in the 2008 election was Goldman Sachs. Yep. So, And by the way, the fascinating thing about that, that's not a secret. That's pretty widely known. Mm-hmm. Bloomberg writes about it. I mean- in, I know. In, it's it's not a secret, but I would say most most- most fans of Barack Obama have chosen to, to ignore it, to have forgotten it. Right. Yes. Uh, have chosen to forgot it, to have forgotten it. And if you look at Hillary Clinton oh, or, same or thing. Bill Clinton, for that same matter, thing. lots and lots of Wall Street. Well, Bill, there. Bill Clinton, you know, bears responsibility for the repeal of, of Glass-Steagall. And the Commodity Futures Modernization and, Act. Yes, indeed. I So quick, funny- And the Telecommunications Act, which Bob Dole said was a $72 billion giveaway and was right. And, and it was. You know, a quick, funny story about the Glass-Steagall repeal. So I've written a number of things about that. I actually have a uh, book for you to take as plain reading. Excellent. Uh, um, and uh, I get a call from Media Matters that are fact-checking Bill Clinton saying- Glass-Steagall didn't cause the crisis. The, the repeal of glass The repeal of Glass-Steagall did not- the Graham, Graham Bliley Leach. That's right. <laughs> now, Phil Graham, if you want to have blame oh, yeah. somebody- Phil and Wendy. That's right. If you look at the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, I have a list of 50 causes. Graham is near the top. Yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton doesn't escape criticism, but I really look at the repeal of Glass-Steagall as it didn't make banks do stupid things. It allowed banks to become bigger. So when they did stupid things, the it had damage- much bigger impact. You know, if you're going to jump out the 50th floor or the 40th floor, well, off the 50th floor, that splat is bigger, yeah. but you're dead regardless. Yeah. It, it's that sort of nuance. That's eh, really not all his fault. It was the Maraschino cherry at the top of the Sunday that, uh, of disaster. Uh, that's a fair fair way to describe <laughs> it. You know, the, I'm always- Anytime somebody says this caused in this really complicated, intricate system with a million moving parts, that life is rarely that easy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, but that said, uh, the maraschino cherry is a, is a perfect metaphor for Thank that. You. Thank you. So, so, God, I'm really pressed for time and I, and I don't want to let you go. You sure you don't want to take a flight out in the morning? Yeah, I'm sure. All right. So, <laughs> so. Wait, I'd rather be at home or in New York. So. Uh, we didn't get to Mel Blank, so let's yeah. talk about your your early mentors and influencers. How did you ever meet Mel, and and what did he? Mel Blank was a member of the cast of the Jack Benny Show, and so uh, willy nilly we were working together. And mm-hmm. he had a son who was my same age, so I think he felt a sort of a paterfamilias uh, sure. uh, quality, not in the Catholic priest sense of the word. Okay, uh, but you know, very very benign, and and but he never said, "Hey, kid, here's how you do voices" or anything like that. It wasn't that. Did it ever come up? Did you ever discuss no, it? No. So this is just a wild, random coincidence. Absolutely. You know, but if you're writing my life story, please don't. But if you're writing my life story, it would seem like the most obvious straight sure. line from Mel Blanc to one you know. of the most famous voice actors in history. Yeah. You worked with, but he really didn't influence your yeah. career. Yeah. All right. Just no, I mean, I was a fan. Right. You couldn't help but be a fan of the greatest voice actor of his ever. generation. Right. Uh, I would Coons. say ever. Ever. Okay. The 
Ever. Emma, uh, tell me I'm no, wrong. No, you're, no, this is, no. You're would, the expert no, in this I'm, space. No, I wouldn't dare say you're wrong. The Looney Tunes characters are unforgettable and timeless and genius inventions. Just brilliant. Yeah. Just, just uh, I, I, I'm, I'm fond of and he was a wonder, And he was a wonderful guy, a very funny guy. A uh, lovely person to have. I, as I don't dare do a voice in front of you. No, you don't. But the um, <laughs> the Bugs Bunny, the Space Invader, yeah. the guy who was a bowling ball. Earthlings make me angry. That voice has stayed with me since I was this tall. I, oh. I just always found but Barry. You're only this tall now. Well, no, but I used to be that tall. <laughs> oh, I see. And now I used to be this tall. That's the thing you could do on radio that mm-hmm. you can't do anywhere else. Um, <laughs> let's talk about some of your favorite books. What really influenced you? What what stayed with you? What had a uh, an impact on you? Um, as a New Orleanian, I I can't uh, not cite uh, Confederacy of Dunces. Okay, uh, a, a brilliant uh, fantasia about life in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, it captures so much of the craziness and the unpredictability and. Uh, the weird routines of of life in that city. Uh, It's just a masterpiece. I I love the rhythm of the title, Confederacy of Dunces, Parliament of Whores. There have been a number of books that carried that same sort of verbal rhythm that just grabs you, and it it has so much resonance. Cash 22, when I was a kid, uh, Mm -hmm. was a profound... You know, it was like, you're trying to think, am I crazy for thinking that this stuff is crazy? And here comes a guy saying, no, you're right, this is crazy. It was very powerful influence. To, to say the least. Yeah. Um, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone graduating college who wanted to have a similar career in entertainment uh, as you do? Live at home with your parents. No. Uh, <laughs> for as well, long many as, of them- I know. Are. Many of them still are. I know. For as long as humanly possible. No, I, I, I always say this when I'm asked that question uh, about show business because the business exists to find young talent- Find the one specific thing that young talent can can be narrowed down to. Mine that as quickly as possible, as as deeply as possible, and then throw it away. Right. Toss you to the curb before Har- you know what's happening. Harvest the organs and then and bam, bam, put, it, put the rest into the recycle. So bin. I say talent is good, luck is better, but nothing beats sheer brute persistence. Huh, that's quite fascinating. You know, the role of luck comes up on this show oh. constantly. And I, and I get to interview... A lot of billionaires. And when these guys say, you know, you can't discount how important it is to get lucky occasionally, it, it comes up time and time again. And Absolutely. I don't think that's a false humility. I, I think it's sincere. It's the real deal. I mean, I, I know so many brilliantly talented people in, in show business who haven't had that luck that I had to, you know, have Matt Groening be a fan of my radio show uh, when they were doing the casting on The Simpsons. That's how it happened. That simple. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that that's amazing. If I weren't a stubborn... SOB and continuing to do the uh, radio show for no reason at all, for no money at all. Right. Uh, Matt wouldn't have been a fan, and I wouldn't be sitting here going, I own you. And that's that's the beauty of finding something you really love and, and working at it, even if there's no uh, apparent financial compensation. Even if there's no apparent financial compensation, you're still uh, running a thing called a life. Right. And uh, Speaking of which, I have a printout of your- Entire retirement account here. I want to discuss some of your <laughs> some of your stock picks. Yeah. Before you run off to the airport, I'm gone. You, I'm so gone. Let me give you the last question. Um, uh, I ask all my guests, mm-hmm. and it's simply this: What do you know today about your chosen profession, show business, acting, whatever you want to describe, entertainer, 
that you wish you knew when you started out all those decades ago? Just how hard it is. Really? Yeah. Just how hard it is. Uh, you make it look easy. I wasn't, and I'm not just saying that to blow smoke. That's you seem to be natural. You seem to be very comfortable with it. And well, I don't, I don't mean, see the perspiration. I, 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 see I don't. The I don't result. mean. I don't mean the work. Uh, the work it, it comes easily because you have one has perhaps a certain talent, but the survival, the the weathering of the storms, the grind, the grind, the fact that if you're in show business, m- many of us. Uh, because it's something you love and you have to do it. That's the other thing I say to kids is don't get into this if you think, well, this would be nice. Get into it if you have to do it because that that will be the basis of your persistence. But because you love it, because you adore it, because you have to do it, you have given a rusty ice pick to the executives uh, 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 who run the business to scrape into your innards at any given moment. And that's the that's the hard part. It's just it, it's unrelenting. And uh, until you it's get it's a for-profit business, and and that's it's of, it's more uh, than that. It's it's the it's the egos of guys who are in a business where people are getting adored and revered, and they're sitting there going, "All I'm doing is making effing money." I hate these people. That's good money, effing money. Effing money is the best money. But you know what I mean? It's there's a there's a certain uh, envy that the executives have of the people who supposedly have all the fun. And they're going to get their piece of their, their their ton of flesh, right? For 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 whatever. I know yeah. you have to run. I'd yeah. love to keep you here another hour and a half. Uh, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our special guest today has been Harry Shearer. People want to find you. They could go to harryshearer.com and on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. At the Harry Shearer. I knew it was just a little off from your name. Yeah. I'm Barry Ritholtz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>